Welcome to Talking History with Farnham U3A History Group. In this talk, Timothy Davis reviews the advances in sanitation in Victorian times from the viewpoint of his great-great-grandfather, George Jennings. Part A. We're going to talk about spending a penny, or maybe flushed with excess. There was a talk last autumn about the Great Exhibition and other exhibitions. The Great Exhibition was the brainchild of Prince Albert. He was one of the people who promoted it very heavily. He was one of the people that made it happen. And I would like you to imagine back to 1850 when the preparations were being put together for the Great Exhibition, a meeting taking place probably in one of the royal palaces, probably in a smoke-filled room of the committee putting together this exhibition. Prince Albert would be in the chair, and it's about the planned exhibition, and a Mr. George Jennings is presenting to the meeting. He is presenting the need to have the necessary convenience at the exhibition. After all, where would people go if the necessary convenience wasn't there? Now, there were a lot of people who said, what do we need this for? People aren't going to an exhibition to wash their hands. The result was that Mr. Jennings, supported by the Royal Society for Arts, was invited to provide the necessary convenience at the exhibition. And for providing the necessary convenience, he was permitted to charge one penny for each person who used the facilities. He was also given, free of charge, a stand to display his wares. Between the 1st of May and the 15th of October 1851, the monkey closets in the retiring rooms were the first modern public toilets and caused great excitement. 827,280 of the visitors, that's 14% of all people who went to the exhibition, actually used the facilities. Can you imagine if they'd all gone behind trees? They paid one penny to use them. They got a clean seat, a towel, a comb, and a shoeshine. That's quite a lot for a penny, isn't it? A total of around £3,447, which was a profit of 1790 over the costs of putting the facility in, was uh, raised by this. The take was roughly £440,000 in today's money. Not bad for something that people thought was unnecessary. So to spend a penny became a euphemism for going to the toilet. Remember, this is in the days where we're told that the Victorians used to cover table legs. Whether they did or not, I don't know. When the Crystal Palace moved to Sydenham and the toilets were to be closed, Mr Jennings persuaded the organisers to keep them open and went on to earn over £1,000 a year from them, from the visitors to the Crystal Palace at Sydenham. I mentioned euphemisms. We're not sure if it's the taboo of the unmentionable or the taboo of the unclean that brings the euphemisms that people refer to. However, I'm sure many of you have been invited to go and wash your hands, even though you were perfectly clean when you left home. 
there are those who go and inspect the plumbing. It's amazing how many fully qualified sanitary plumbers there must be. You can go to the comfort room, which I suppose gives rise to the things that they say in meetings, would you like a comfort break? You can go to the bathroom again. You cleanse yourself before going to visit your friends and then you're invited to take a bath. Are they suggesting you're unclean? You can visit the smallest room and there's a book over there which was one of my reference sources called The Smallest Room, written I think in the 1950s. You can go to a restroom. Normally I find these facilities are quite small. The idea of a restroom is somewhere with a bed in it. You can be excused. You can pick a daisy, cloakrooms. Have you been shown the geography of the house? It's a thinking place. Well, maybe that's true for some. The loo, as opposed to the place that people go on holiday to. Powder your nose. Well, I must admit that if most men said they're going to powder their nose, people might wonder about them. And I love this one, used by the French resistance. Usually with hand signals of pulling a chain, holding their nose, je vais téléphoner à Hitler. You can see that he wasn't a popular man. So let's go back a few years. Let's put things into context. The Romans had baths, for example, at Bath. And they were the first to develop a sophisticated sanitary system in Britain. They had an understanding of the need for sanitation on a scale that wouldn't be seen again for another 1,500 years. I can assure you the Dark Ages really were. There were luxury baths with hot and cold water, steam rooms and showers. Bathers were coated with a semi-solid material and oils and then scraped clean. For those who are particularly dirty, they used sand, but I don't think it was sandpaper. Toilets were public too. At Housesteads, that's on the Hadrian's Wall, one could sit in a group of up to 20 people while sending offerings to the gods. There was Sturticus, Saturn and Crepitus, the gods of Odior. Then there was Cloacina, the purifier who cleansed all. There were vessels for relief on street corners in Rome. These were emptied into larger tanks and the, the liquid obtained was used for fulling cloth. The emperor taxed these facilities. Pliny noted that the fullers never suffered from gout. Then, of course, chamber pots. And the Sybarites, you may have heard of Sybarites, they're people, apparently, who like to party. Well, they invented the chamber pot, or so it is claimed, carried them to their drinking parties so that they could minimise their time away from the bar. Apparently, the depravity of the Romans reached its peak with their chamber pots. Rolleston wrote in 1751, he must have been very well informed or very old, that we may date the commencement of the ruin, and that is of the Roman Empire, from the introduction of gold and silver chamber pots and close stool pots. Before the days of modern sanitary wear and uh, sewers and things like that, you had to be very careful when walking down streets at night because people would empty them out of the window. There we see a gentleman who's probably not popular knocking on the door. Pots were disguised as elegant pieces of furniture, chairs, cabinets, chests of drawers, and people like Chippendale, Hepplewhite, and Sheraton all designed bedroom cupboards and commodes. In modern times, the chamber pot has been used for propaganda purposes. That particular one plays Rule Britannia, 
and features a gentleman, if you can see, who the French resistance used to like to go and telephone. Disposal of waste was a problem, particularly in the larger towns and cities. And in 1772, the Fleet River was referred to as a nauseous and abominable stink of nastiness. Even though sewers and drains had started to be built, and at a price, householders could connect to them. It wasn't until the great stink of 1858 that Parliament decided there must be action. In fact, in 1851, the Chancellor of the Exchequer had fought against putting any money into public sanitation because he felt there was no need. And there we see a picture of old Father Thames and the constituents that you'd find in the water, which would be guaranteed to give you some unpleasant illness. At that time, the Thames, the lifeblood of maritime London, was the biggest sewer of them all. Then there are garderobes. Now, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, it means a storeroom for valuables, but by extension, a private room, a bedchamber, and also a privy. And the most common use today is as a toilet in a castle. And there we see one on the wall at Peveril Castle in Derbyshire. Often placed inside a small chamber, leading by association to the use of the term garderobe to describe the rooms, many can still be seen in medieval castles and fortifications. At Donegal Castle, it was believed that the ammonia created would protect visitors' coats and cloaks from moths and fleas. Direct connection to the outside and the fact that the seat was stone meant that these were cold and draughty places also a weak spot in the castle's fortifications because not only did Johnny English climb up a sewage pipe into a castle in France in a film but other people also actually did gain admission into castles through this slightly unpleasant route and it is said that one of the kings in pre-Norman times Anglo-Saxon kings was killed by somebody pushing a spear up on London Bridge there was a public toilet and discharged straight into the Thames. And that gave rise to the saying that the bridge was built for wise men to go over and for fools to go under. Necessary houses. You see, all these lovely euphemisms. Monasteries had necessary houses. They were probably the cleanest places to go in medieval times. Quite sophisticated water systems and rules about washing before eating. Yeah, we see the necessary house at Fountains Abbey built around the 12th century. The rivers were used to remove the waste and the facility at Canterbury was 145 feet long. We then move on. And earth closets were common right throughout the 19th century into the 20th century and in some parts of the world are still in use. The Jericho, as quite a few of them were referred to because that was one of the makes was a feature of life, particularly in rural co communities. Now, just to give you some facts about water, it is said that the Roman aqueduct supplied 300 gallons of water per head into Rome every day. In the 1880s, the Rivers Pollution Commission reported that in London, people were using 40 gallons of water a day. In Manchester, 21 gallons. In Yorkshire, Lancashire, manufacturing towns, an average of 18 gallons. And in Norwich, 14 and a half. 
So here is a diagram of a Geordie earth closet, or netty, as they were referred to, at the back of a miner's house. So you will see that the coal house is next door to the netty, which is the facilities that you poured ashes in at the top and removed the night soil, as it was referred to at the bottom. More modern is the Zimbabwe long drop. And this is a properly concrete-built facility designed to be fly and odour-free. Odour-free, the pipe creates a draught as it heats up and the air is pulled through the doorway, through the facility and then up the pipe. Fly-free because flies like light and smell. A pit 15 feet deep by six across for the average family will never fill up unless they slip. Concrete slab has two holes, one for the pipe and one for the squat hole. There is no door because doors have hinges which break. But it does have proper walls and a roof. And of course, no explorer worth his salt left home without one of those. Commonly referred to as a thunderbox, these commodes were used in homes and also on expeditions. Disposal. These two charming gentlemen are night soil men. And night soil men were an important part of the community because they collected the waste during the dark hours, or the quieter hours. And the waste was often used for compost, taken out of town. It was a well-paid occupation. So, let there be water. The water closet. Now, the Romans, they understood the need for water. So did some monasteries and some castles, but... Remember, don't go swimming in the moat, because the garderobe probably went straight into the moat. The first true British water closet was invented in 1596 by Sir John Harrington, a godson of Queen Elizabeth I. This device of mine requires not a sea full of water, but a cistern, not a whole Thames full, half a ton full, to keep all sweet and savoury and came from the book he wrote about his invention called The Metamorphosis of Ajax. Sadly, he was 179 years before his time because only two were ever built. One for his godmother and one for himself. Diagram of his closet, so as you can see at the top, A up here is the cistern, D is the seat, H is the pot, I the sluice, M and N are the storage vault. Not quite sure whether I'd like the idea of a storage vault, but sounds a bit like a midden to me. As I say, two were made. One for his godmother, who didn't really like it and didn't use it and preferred the chamber pot in her private chambers, and one for himself, which I presume he did use regularly. So, progress. 1773, Alexander Cumming patents a water closet that includes, for the very first time, an S-trap. So we now have a water blockage between the pan and where the waste has gone to. In 1778, Joseph Brammer virtually perfected that technology, and it remained the most satisfactory until the mid-19th century. And in fact, Brammer toilets were being built along this pattern until somewhere in the 1890s. Now we come to the hero of our time, George Jennings. So that was Mr. George Jennings, a picture of him, I'm assuming round about 1870, 1875. Josiah Jennings 
was his father, born in 1771, died in 1824. We'll come back to his death in a short while. He had six or seven children. It's not quite definite as to how many there were. I suspect seven. His first child died in 1810, and there's reference to six children later on, so I'm, I'm assuming there were seven in total. But Josiah George Jennings, better known as George Jennings, was born on the 10th of November 1810 and died on the 17th of April 1882. He was born at Ealing on the edge of the New Forest in Hampshire and was baptised on the 9th of December 1810. His father was a plumber. He was educated at a local school, which was run by an uncle of his. It was quite a large family. On October the 10th, 1874 he wrote to two of his sons. Fifty years have now passed and gone this day, October the 10th, 1824. My poor father died, leaving my share of all the world and my mother and children to provide for. I remember perfectly my Aunt Nancy first telling me my poor father was very ill, then that she feared that he would die. We were thus prepared when he died. I wonder at the feelings of my poor father, who, having missed his mark in life, I mean, that's pretty condemning of your father, felt he must soon die and leave his wife and six little ones totally impoverished. He called my mother to him, and taking her hand, he said, Polly, I fear I shall never get better. It is hard to leave you as you will be left, but George is a good boy and Kate is a good girl. They are good children, and God will not forsake you or them. At 12 o'clock the same day, he died. As I say, that was from a letter written to two of his sons, Alfred and Sidney, 50 years to the day after his father had died. It continues, I, a lad of Walter's age, Walter was one of his sons who at that time was about 15, and I imagine just such another boy found myself without a single penny. But I was young, young enough. I had a good constitution, which I have never abused. And I had an example of energy set by my mother, who at once opened a school. Her success was great, but my appetite was greater. And rather than eat up the bread she toiled to gain, I left, of course with my appetite, and obtained work at Romsey, a town about seven miles distant. He went to work in his grandfather's glass and lead merchandising business in Romsey. I received 24 shillings for my week's work. How I lived that week, I cannot tell. But after paying my lodgings, etc., I had eight. To me, then, large half-crowns left. For those that you remember, that was a pound or 20 shillings. So four shillings for board and lodging, 20 shillings left saved. Every one of those half-crowns, as soon as received on the Saturday night, I took to my poor mother. Rumsey, I've said, is about seven miles from my home, but no boy ever crossed seven miles quicker or felt happier than I did when I parted with my first week earnings. My mother cried for joy, and I kept her company. Thus launched upon the world, I went on for that mark my poor father had missed. How I have worked, no one can tell except those like myself who've had to do battle with circumstances. Fight first, early and late, for daily bread. Myself never forgetting my mother and my father's children. I prospered, and I hope, if I have time for reflection before I am called away, that I shall not feel I have missed my mark. 
and that your dear mother will have fewer shadows on her path if she survives me than my poor mother had. Their poor mother died in 1919, according to a statement of her affairs from 1919, she left over £6,000. So their poor mother didn't have the disadvantages that his poor mother had had. He then moved to work at the plumbing business of his uncle John Jennings in Southwick in Southampton. He then moved in 1831 and became a plumber at Lancelot Burton in Newcastle Street in the Oldwich. His father, at one time, before going independent, had been a foreman there. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A History Group, or the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. This podcast is produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group. Thank you for listening to this talk 